desperately need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. And for the next hour, we're going to be talking with uh, Professor Michael Nyman uh, from uh, Buffalo State. He joins us this morning. We've got a lot to cover here in the next hour. We'll get into a lot of cultural issues uh, regarding race. Also bring them back home here uh, to Buffalo. Uh, Professor Nyman, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, so much to talk about, and you, you, you've done extensive writing both on a, on a local level and on a national level as well about a, a lot of these different issues. And a couple that we just want to use maybe as things to, to start off our conversation. Uh, the idea, and we've touched on this a little bit, but it's so, I think, important to understand is the generational wealth disparity mm-hmm. that we see uh, between blacks and whites. Obviously, it's here in Buffalo, in one of the poorest cities in America, the most one of the most segregated cities in America. Um, but it's a larger issue that has really interesting historical roots. Yes, and I, I think it's also very important not just to look at those roots, but to look at how that wealth gap is portrayed. And, you know, part of this uh, construction of you know, um, you know, white superiority, right? You know, white supremacy has a narrative that uh, you blame the victim. But if you look at this, and this is something that's really interesting to teach because uh, so many students of color, you know, come into the room blaming their families for their economic struggles and not really understanding and, 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 and saying, I don't understand, my, my dad works two jobs, my mom works two jobs, you know, and yet, you know, I'm still having to take out loans and work to go to school, and I'm still falling in debt, and I'm still suffering this, you know, uh, this economic disadvantage. And I always blamed my parents. Um, the example that I use is uh, I, I like to talk about, for instance, one just so many, so many systems are in place. I'm really glad that um, Ibram X. Kendi you know, was here uh, to talk a lot about, you know, uh, racist policy. And how it's it's you know much more than people. It's policy that really puts this on a kind of economic autopilot. There's another scholar um, by the name of Reitmeyer. She examines. She's an economic historian, and she examines you know how these are really um, these are loops. These are feedback loops that are locked in to our economy. Uh, one, for example, uh, makes a very, very big difference is real estate. And, you know, for most Americans, you know, real estate is their main asset. Right. A home, an average American, white American would most likely have a home, and that would be their source of some sort of wealth or some sort of uh, equity. Right. And, it's, you know, it's, well, equity is a very important thing because it also en- enables, you know, credit. 
And if you have equity and you have credit, then suddenly everything is much more affordable. If you don't have credit, which is oftentimes tied to that equity in real estate, then suddenly, you know, your credit card rates are really much higher. I, I don't mean like 50% higher, but might be three, four, five times higher. Much more likely to go into default because you don't have the cushion of real estate. But let's let's look at this historically, okay? So, okay. Uh, and the example I really like to use is, um, you know, Levittown, Long Island. So you have World War II ends, and all of the GIs are coming back home. And we have the GI Bill, and we have you know, the government, you know, the FHA programs, and these two things kind of tied together to uh, create easy money for GIs, for veterans, come back from World War II to buy homes in these, these newly developing suburbs. And this is all funded, you know, with, with federal money. So I, I like to give the example, because my, my dad, you know, was, was in World War II. So my dad comes home. I, he, he actually didn't buy one of these houses, but, you know, um, a white, you know, a white GI comes back after fighting in the war and surviving the war and so on. And they come back, and a black GI comes back. Similar, you know, similar histories, similar economic statuses. They both live in New York City. They both rent apartments, and the GI Bill comes along. And what the bill is giving them is it's giving them a no money down, a, you know, low interest rate mortgage to buy new houses. Uh, in these newly developed, you know, suburban subdivisions, which is that is being sold also as the American dream. Right, and Levittown so, basically didn't exist until that time. It was, it was a potato field, right? right. So Levittown, and, and, you know, I use Levittown because it's the template for everything that was being developed all around the country in every major metropolitan right. area. You can see it here. I mean, you historically can see it here yeah. in Hamburg and in more West ch- Seneca. Yeah, and yeah. more Chictawaga, your first ring in, in a, you know, suburbs. So what they would get is they would get a house in Levittown, a brand new house, low maintenance, Maintenance, you're good to roll for 20 years without thinking about a roof or thinking about plumbing. And the house would come basically equipped. So it came with a refrigerator, right? You know, uh, it came with, you know, um, it had a driveway, had a garage. You know, this is, this is the American dream. So your house comes, you know, basically equipped, move-in condition, uh, grassy backyard. And what they were paying turned out to be much lower than what they were paying in rent. Now, that white GI gets that money and moves out there, but it's not available to the black GI. And, you know, the reason being, you know, because the government, you know, said, and we're still looking at the remnants of like, you know, the New Deal and so on, you know, New Deal actually had lots of racist policy, lots of racist economic policy built into it. But they said, oh, this isn't racism. We're not, you know, we're not prohibiting black folks or anybody based on identity from getting one of these loans. The loans are available to everybody but you cannot get the loan in an integrated community or an integrating community. They had to be for segregated communities. Now, again, they backed around, you know, they said, well, this, you know, this, is, this is just basically, we want this pool of money to last intergenerationally. So we want people to buy these houses, we want the real estate to appreciate, we want them to pay down their mortgages, and then they can you know, pay back the money, the money's there for the next generation, and if you look historically, and they're actually accurate, you know, in integrated neighborhoods, uh, the property doesn't appreciate in value. In fact, sometimes depreciates in value. That's based on a lot of things, right? You know, and yeah, yeah, absolutely racism, but it's a racism driven by fear. And what are they afraid of? 
Well, one of the main things people are afraid of that drove white flight was they're afraid that the property values would decrease. Now, also, there are other people who are just outright racists. But overall, the property values did have a higher likelihood of decreasing because people believed they would. So you had this feedback loop. So the government said, well, we just can't lend money into a community where we can't really you know, see stable property value increases. And they quickly defended themselves. That, but you know, if there's any new black subdivisions being built, of course we'll lend money. Of course, there were no new black subdivisions being built because the people that supplied the capital, the developers, and so on, you know, were not building new black subdivisions. So basically, the black GI was closed out of this program, which was funded by our tax money. So the white GI gets a house in Levittown. The black GI continues to be around in the Bronx. And, you know, what happens with rent over the course of 10 years? You know, rent keeps going up. So the black GI's rent keeps going up. That keeps eating a bigger and bigger portion of his family's budget. You know, uh, the white GI's rent stays the same because it's a fixed-rate mortgage. 20 years go by. Could be 15, could be 30, but basically 20 years go by. What happens? The white GI's mortgage is paid off. The black GI's rent has gone up for another decade and is still higher. And then you fast forward, okay, now the, now the white GI, you know, the veteran, not GI, veteran, now the white veteran, you know, lives another 10, 20, 30 years not having to pay a mortgage. Where does that money go? Savings. Savings and also goes into the children's education, being able to, like, help kids go to college, things like that. So this starts affecting college, which is another driver of intergenerational, you know, wealth, you know, inequity. So fast forward some more. Eventually, you get around to a time when what are, what are World War II veterans doing? You know, well, now they're old and, and they're dying. So what happens when that white veteran dies? Well, there's this house in, you know, Levittown that's been paid off. What's that worth? Right? And, and you know, $500,000 conservatively? My students always correct me. You know, <laughs> I say, no, 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 seven hundred. dollars know. So whatever that's worth, where does that money go? It goes to, you know, it goes to the next generation. What are they? Who are they? What are they doing? Well, they're parents whose kids are about to go to college. So, or, you know, and, and now even beyond that, you know, this is even a generation removed from that. So they suddenly have this equity coming in in their parents' home, and they can afford to subsidize those kids going to college. What's happening to that black GI you know, veteran who, you know, who passes on? Well, if his family's lucky, they get to take over the lease in a rent-controlled apartment, and there's no equity there, and there's probably there's probably some kind of debt associated. Now, there's no difference between these two men, you know, and there were men. At the, they at both that point, served. Right? Yeah, both served in the in the war. Right, and everything else, both, and um, you know, both being you know equal education, similar professions. The only difference is one was white, one was black. Now move forward another generation, what's happened to that wealth, another, you know, so you can see how this wealth isn't just there, but it keeps expanding and expanding and expanding, because ultimately in this society, you know, the people who make money, make money through investments, not through labor. You know, it's interesting that you talked about how this was the American dream Mm -hmm. in the, you know, late 40s, early 50s. Not only did it play itself out, right, but it became so much a part of the of the myth of America, right? That, you know, 
of this white community. These are the, you know, the, the backbones of America that are working hard in uh, building homes and building communities across, the, across uh, America, right? right but, but this myth, okay, you know, which I, I really like your use of the term myth because it was a myth. Um, you know, just like nostalgia is a myth. You know, do you really want to go back to the 1950s? Do you really want to go back to the 1960s, right? But it wasn't a myth for, you know, for people of color. It wasn't a myth for, you know, who were locked out of this dream. It wasn't a myth for people who this dream could be a nightmare. And, you know, again, it was living on the east side. It was really eye-opening for me to see how many of my neighbors did not want to go to the Galleria Mall, did not want to go to the suburbs, felt uncomfortable for good reasons. A friend of mine who, you know, owned a business on the east side moved to Cheektowaga and moved back three years later because of police harassment, you know. So, you know, not only was this not a dream and not only was it a myth, but, you know, it was an exercise of privilege. And, and that's another important thing is that, you know, there's an equation. If somebody's getting a job they weren't qualified for based on some kind of a, you know, a social bias— and, and we see that all the time, then somebody who was qualified for that job didn't get that job. So that, you know, wherever there's somebody receiving a privilege, you know, there's the other part of the equation where somebody is, you know, where somebody is at a disadvantage. And when you, when you look at this, there's this really interesting sociological study, and sociologists have done great work um, where they would send, you know, uh, two candidates, one white, one black, give them equal resumes, send them out, you know, applying for similar or the same jobs. And the only difference was that they put a felony conviction on the white person's, uh, not resume, of course, but in the white person's background. And that white, those white people, those, um, and they were, you know, they were, uh, you know, fake identities. Sure. They were offered jobs more so than the black person who had equal credentials but did not have that felony conviction. And when they then went back and they interviewed the people, um, well, why'd you make this hiring? They, you know, Absolutely, I am not a racist. And this is really, you know, this is your new enlightened racism, right? It's unfashionable to be a racist. So people just lie to themselves about their racism and they always make up some kind of other excuse. I don't know really what it was. This is the quote. I don't really know what it was, but, you know, I, I just seem... I like I liked candidate A he better just than seemed candidate more, He B. just seemed more trustworthy. So that, when I was... Um, an adjunct at UB in the 1980s, I had a student who was part of a shoplifting ring, two, uh, two white kids, three black kids. And they'd go into department stores, you know, uh, and the three black kids would just like kind of go in and scatter in different directions. And that would, you know, keep the security guards busy while the two white kids just kind of cleaned up with, you know, small, and there's technology that prevents that today, you know, right. RFID chips and so on. But back then, they were kind of putting themselves through college, splitting it all five ways. And so think about that racism of these, you know, uh, and we all know, you know, shopping while black, right? Um, think of the racism and how it hurts the businesses who are actually practicing that racism because they're making bad, stupid decisions based on that racism. Now, think of the people who are hiring 
and have this internal bias that they are in denial about. They're making bad, stupid decisions as well, and they lose also because of that. Uh, you know, they people think about people who just like you know th see the threat in a black body. Think evolutionarily that doesn't work because they have poor threat assessment skills. They can't see where the real threats are because they're confused by their own racism. But yeah, I mean, so, is that a larger? It could be taken to a larger level that that, that so much of America is is fine. And we go. I mean, we got. We can touch on this replacement theory that we heard so much about that was behind five fourteen. You know, people are worried about a threat that's not really there and not paying attention to and, a, a larger, perhaps you know, a, a power and, control and, and right? destroying themselves because of it. And so that you know, if you look at how people vote. You know, people vote against their own best interests over and over and over and over again because of some mythological fear that, well, maybe a person of color might benefit from this too. So, I mean, what now, there's a lot of questions. Is this deep-seated hatred? And, and some people it is. And most people it's, um, you know, that they're being manipulated, but... And, and they're always victimizing themselves. And if, if you look at the creation of the white race, which I'll get to in a minute, you know, was created as a social control mechanism. And it was used throughout our history. You know, if you can keep like the, you know, the white, the white steel workers and the black steel workers who have equal concerns working under the same conditions, substitute any, any industry, right? If you can, you know, naturally they're going to unite and, and they're going to organize so race comes into play as a method of social control to keep people from organizing. And ultimately, what they do is they undermine themselves, the white folks and the black folks are both hurt by, you know, not having that unity. Um, I, I got really, to really stop for a second, though, sure. and, and say that, you know, yes, white racists hurt themselves with their racism, but there's also part of me, and I'm not really, you know, um, proud of it, and a part of me says to you know to hell with them, because the people who are really being hurt, you know, that's where we really really have to focus on. So right. There's a whole narrative on why some kid from Conkland, you know, is raised to be so screwed up that he comes here to, you know, to, to terrorize terrorize, you know, Buffalo's black community, and I'm just terror. That terror is there. You know, you don't I'm, you don't need a white person to come here and tell you about it. That's not why you know I'm I'm here. Understood. Right. Um, I can't think about him. This is not about white people, you know, when, when he comes here and, and does this. But to look at it on a macro level, you know, uh, white people who buy into, you know, racist fear wind up doing things, particularly in the voting booth, that undermine their own self-interests. So, you know, I, mean, I, I go back to, like, um, the, one of the – when George W. Bush was elected uh, – Gay marriage was put on the ballot or bills outlawing, you know, same-sex marriage, not just gay marriage or same-gender marriage, you know, uh, gender nonconforming marriage. You know, bills were put on, on the books just to get people to come out to the polls to vote against, you know, same-sex marriage that, rights. Yeah. One issue. And now, so you like, you think about somebody, okay, back then, right? Uh, and that's where, you know, globalization was really hitting, you know, economies in the heartland hard. So, like, you know, 
you live in a small town, you know, uh, in the middle of the country. Your downtown is all boarded up because the Walmart sucked up all the businesses, you know, selling cheap imported stuff from China. Your factories are closing down. Your jobs are disappearing. You look, you're facing intergenerational unemployment. Um, you know, your kids are going off and not coming back. You know, your world is disappearing around you. But you're more concerned that the loving couple down the block might get married. I mean, what kind of insanity is that? And, and that is, you know, that turned out to be fear. And now we have, you know, now we have, you know, same-sex marriage. And what we have are and stronger families. We have, you know, it, it, it's really, you know, stronger family values. You know, none of this, none of these people keep getting this, this you know, bill of lies. None of it ever comes true. It's just fear, irrational fear. And it's also not, you know, it's also uh, not built into the human so-called nature, right, which is a problematic word. So uh, we can talk more about that. Let's uh, take, a, take a quick time out here. We'll take, uh, catch our breath, and we'll come back. We've got a lot to talk about here. Professor Michael Nyman from Buffalo State with us on Buffalo What's Next. We'll be right back. Join Buffalo Toronto Public Media on August 24th at 6 p.m. for a creative and empowering youth-focused event that will help normalize mental health and wellness. Join us at our studios to watch clips of Ken Burns' documentary, Hiding in Plain Sight, Youth Mental Illness. Then participate in mindful discussions, interactive breakout sessions, and informative activities. Free dinner will also be provided. For more information, visit wned.org events. Watch Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Crystal Beach was such an important part of the lives of anyone growing up in the Western New York or Southern Ontario area. Relive those childhood memories with the WNED PBS original production, Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. With me, Professor Michael Nyman from Buffalo State College. Uh, we're getting into an expansive conversation about a variety of issues that all really kind of are at the core of what we've been talking about on Buffalo What's Next here. And one thing you, want, you wanted to get into, the invention of the white race. I mean, just the idea that it was invented. Uh, expand on that, please. Yeah, it's, it's an identity, and it's invented, and... And it's in flux, right? I'll talk more about that. But, you know, it's a socially defined category, and it's basically defined by power. It is part of the construction of a power dynamic. Um, there's a really excellent, uh, very in-depth, two-volume, like 400 pages per volume, uh, work that was published in 2012 by a historian of race in the United States, Theodore Allen. And it's called the invention of the white race. He he looked at um, the British treatment of the Irish prior to colonization to lay down the foundation for understanding anti-black racism. Interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. In, in that you know, the Irish were not white. 
But if you look at, you know, Brits and Irish today, it's like, what does this mean? They're not white. But they were definitely not white. And hence, they could be treated and they could be abused and their labor could be stolen. Ultimately, that disadvantaged British workers who were, you know, because suddenly they're now competing against a really exploited labor force that drives down wages for everybody. Um, so that Alan looks at that, you know, and kind of like lays, lays down his work based upon that. And he starts looking at historical records and he, he finds that the first, you know, the first Africans, and of course, we, you know, now it's pretty well known, arrived in Virginia Colony in 1619, hence the, the fantastic 1619 project. Um, he points out when the first Africans showed up in Virginia in 1619, there were no white people there. White in quotation marks, right? There are no white people there. Nor, according to colonial records, would there be any white people there for 60 years. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't, you know, uh, British colonists there and the British gentry and so on and slave owners, you know, but we didn't refer to them at the time. I, I use the we very liberally. Sure, know? understood. Right? You know, nobody referred to them as white. That term didn't exist. Um, Allen found, you know, no instances of any official use of the term white to refer to social status, to refer to people, before the word was used in a law in Virginia in 1691. So 72 years, you know, after the first, you know, colony, after, after the Virginia colony is established, not the first, after the Virginia colony is established, we see the word white in 1691. And he said that white identity had to be taught to people. The reason why, you know, the reason why white, becomes important is you need to look at the Baker's Rebellion. Uh, Bacon, Bacon, Bacon's Bacon's Rebellion, right, right, of 1676, 1677. That was the first stab at an American Revolution, 100 years, you know, before the American Revolution that we know about. And that ultimately what Bacon's Rebellion was, was it was Irish indentured servants, nearly slaves, right? You know, you're going to work this lifetime for you know, your child's freedom in the, you know, right? So uh, it was a, you know, a, it was a rebellion of white indentured servants, almost all, you know, Irish, and African slaves, and then black American second generation slaves, right, um, who got together and nearly overthrew the colonial government. And they were put down, but that scared the white, you know, the white gentry minority, the moneyed white minority who owned the colony, who owned most of the property, who owned people, and who owned the labor of other people. That scared them because they were a minority. And they said that something has to be done to undermine that unity. And that's when they started giving some white privilege, doling out some crumbs to the Irish indentured servants and the children of the Irish. And ultimately that caused distrust between the black folks and the Irish because, well, you know... One had privilege and one didn't. And even though the privilege was hardly privilege, it was just maybe a little bit less oppression, right? Right. But so it goes like this, you know, the black folks are, well, you know, the black folks are looking at the Irish and saying, huh, you know, their children think that they can own my children and we can't trust them. And that, you know, and, and now they have this other commonality and now they're allowed these privileges and they can do these things. So they're starting to look more and more and more like the oppressor. And the Irish are looking at the black slaves 
and they're thinking the same thing. You know, well, I can be a rich white person. My children can own black slaves, right? So this brilliant, deviously brilliant construction of whiteness stopped the real American Revolution. When we get American Revolution 100 years later, that comes at a time when the British start abolishing slavery or allowing slavery to be abolished in various colonies. And the writing was on the wall, and you know you started to have you know a stronger a stronger movement talking about you know slavery and various uh, you know uh, different Christian sects are seeing it as being immoral, and they're starting to set up a beachhead over here. So you know that revolution. Uh, some historians will argue, many historians will argue, you know one of the driving factors was to break from the British before the British abolished slavery. Hmm. And it's really important to understand slavery wasn't just the theft of black labor, but the American banking system was heavily built upon the equity of black bodies. So slaves were commodities in colonial law, and slaves were commodities in American law after the revolution. So not only, you know, not only, you know, is is your freedom, your labor, you know, being stolen, not only uh, are you treated like a thing, can you be raped and so on legally, but uh, the acquisition of land by, and more land and tools by plantation owners was made possible using slaves as collateral. And that collateral started making up a very large chunk of the equity upon which our banks were built. So banks on. today, in essence, uh, the same banks oftentimes, right, were built on on the equity of black bodies. If you abolish slavery, you abolish that equity. You crash the economic system. Suddenly, this is baked in. So this this horrific barbarism is now the foundation of the economic system. And it goes more that that slaves were not, you know, the stereotype that all slaves were field hands, right, right. And of course, field being a field hand is skilled work. You know, agriculture is skilled work, but it goes beyond that. Um, Senegalese engineers were captured and sold into slavery, and they're worth a lot of money because they were engineers, and they brought with them an engineering system that uh, kind of revolutionized how things were built in the United States. There's a plantation tours in. Um, Louisiana are horrific. People get married at a plantation. It's, it's like being married in, you know, in Buchenwald, you know, or Auschwitz. You know, these are, you know, for black Americans, these are concentration camps. Horrors happened there. But there's this one slave plantation uh, that it's called the Laura Plantation in Louisiana uh, near the Mississippi River. And it's won all kinds of awards for its, um, you know, as, as, as a museum. When you go there and... and you know, they will show you the interlocking beams with numbers on them that this uh, manor house was a kit that was pre-made and then pieced together. It survived floods. It survived fires. You know, it's been there for hundreds of years. It was engineered by slaves. And it gets more complicated. Um, and, and that many, many of, of the, this talent was involved in building the capital. So, you know, and then it gets, you know, if you look at that plantation, that plantation was run by 
Creoles. Well, who are Creoles? Creoles were people of African descent who rose in social class to have liberties and freedoms, not all of them, and be slave owners. And what was their main commodity? They bred slaves. So mm-hmm. that also shows that, you know, and they slipped into a sort of, you know, netherworld between being black and being white. So racial identity, you know, was in slavery times, you know, connected to social class as well. So it gets really complicated, but yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I recall a conversation we had about oh, six weeks ago or so with a national author, and Anthony Bazil, was in town with the Land Conservancy. And she got into the idea of, and expresses in one of her books about how some of the main agricultural drivers of on these plantations were Africans who had knowledge of how to grow certain products that there was no knowledge of here in North America. So, I mean, there's more and more of this. I guess what I'm I'm getting at here is the idea that there's so much of what has become generally accepted knowledge about and and almost uh, has reduced the people who were enslaved for so long that it it, it builds this this kind of uh, characterization that no skills the the superior people were the people who thought and developed these plantations on their own. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a construct. It seems that's still living today. Right, and you know, and and the racists themselves, you know, so much of their culture comes from Africa. The banjo is an African, you know. So you're sort of looking at that, you know, t- stereotype of somebody living back in the hills playing the banjo. White folks, you know, again, you know, so much of American culture. And American knowledge, you know, stems from Africa. So, yeah, but they had to deny that. They had to deny that. You know, you know, this country was built on big lie after big lie, that being one of them, because you have people and, you know, how in, in a so-called Christian society do you legitimate this? I, I don't really have language to describe such human rights abuses. There's nothing as horrific, you know, uh, as uh, at the time, the transatlantic slave trade, right. uh, which began with Columbus bringing back Native Americans, you know, because he didn't get gold in that first trip, so he tried, you know, oh, but I got these, right? Brought back a few Indians and some parrots and you know, institutional, you know, uh, rape and so on. But you know that internet, that that transatlantic slave trade was just so horrific. How do you justify that? The only way to try to justify that is to try to create this myth that the people, your victims, have no humanity. That you're there to uh, educate and uh, save, the, save the souls of these, of these people. Right, right, right. And, and it's even, you know, uncomfortable to even quote that historically. Right. You know, and, and the othering, you know, of, of, you know, the people who are the victims of this. And at that point, the U.S. economy, you know, by the time the revolution happens, you know, and then well, well into the 19th century and to some degree, you know, and well beyond that, the economy is totally dependent upon this continued exploitation. You, we can probably move this forward uh, considerably because you got involved in these conversations, uh, uh, Buffalo Conversations on Pluralism and identity. I, I don't know, I didn't quote it exactly correctly, but yeah. but it was an I it does show again how there is a an ignorance of uh, understanding uh, about things and and how so developed attitudes are and so in, have become so 
embedded in the American thought. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it ignorance. It was real, the Conversations Project was really interesting. Um, it was under the Clinton administration. It was funded by the federal government. It was uh, National Endowment for the Humanities sponsored it, and it was conversations taking place in a number of American cities. Um, it was called the, uh, and ours was called the Buffalo Conversations on American Pluralism and Identity, and we ran it through uh, with ECC as the host institution, and we had delegations from uh, each of eight different ethnic, racial, you know, um, communities, uh, or and when I say communities, there are so many communities within each so-called, you know, identity. Uh, so we had eight different delegations, and uh, they would each host physically and visit physically every other delegation in this round robin of meetings, and then come together for bigger meetings. And the idea was to discuss American pluralism and identity. And the NEH gave gave me a template to start, you know, to to work with, which is we show a film like you know an hour documentary, and basically talks about culture in the traditional sense, you know, music, food, song, dance, you know, and uh, and then we just have a conversation. And the model as it worked around the country is, you know, you look at these films and they talk about people's music and dance, and everyone's like, oh, I love, you know, I love, you know, I, I, I love Italian food, you know, you know, I love soul food, I love your music, I've been to an Italian wedding, and, and then the night's over. We had, uh, just to give one example, we had um, an Irish-American delegation hosting uh, a black delegation, a black and, Afri and African-American delegation, primarily from the east side of Buffalo, at the Irish Center. And when we went there, you know, we started out with, I love your music, I love your food. And, you know, then, you know, somebody asked the question, you know, this is the first time I've ever really been inside of a building in South Buffalo. Hmm. And then everybody else in the black and African-American delegation said, yeah. And, and then it's like, and I've always been uncomfortable driving through this neighborhood. And then everyone, mm-hmm, right? And there's a lot of recognition. And I see that there's not really any black folks living here. And I know the apartments, you know, I mean, and Driffin was mayor back then, right? So right. Like the streets were like newly paved Absolutely. and stuff, right? And like this neighborhood looks beautiful. And I, and, you know, I've seen, I, I know that housing here is affordable, but there's no people that look like me in this neighborhood. And, uh, you know, the Irish folks, you know, you know, they're like, well, you know, it's like, you know, we have big families and like oftentimes a relative rents a house or if a neighbor's house goes up, you know, word of mouth, you don't have to advertise it, it gets filled. And then there's like a long period of silence. And then the conversation begins. And we were there. You know, the building was supposed to close. The maintenance people came in, right? Mm. You know, waited. And about midnight, there was lots of hugging and exchanging of, of phone numbers. At that point, I realized that, you know, um, and it, it was either that meeting or a different meeting like it. I realized that, you know, I have to do away with these films and just cut to the chase and uh, change the whole format of it. And ultimately, uh, when the NEH uh, made its report to the Congress uh, and the president, which was published as a book, the Buffalo Projects were highlighted. The Buffalo Project was highlighted, you know, and front and center because of, of where these conversations went. And what we basically had was, I've never been here. I've never been, you know, and, and it got really interesting. Uh, I remember um, 
when uh, the, uh, you know, Hispanic and Latino, Latina, you know, uh, delegation was meeting with uh, the black and African-American delegation. And you'd have different people in the delegation from time to time, and then the delegations would meet themselves in larger groups and discuss them. But when we were having that meeting, at some point it came up, and um, one of the uh, women who was Puerto Rican said, you know, I've never been in the house. You know, I've never been in the house of a black person. And then there's like a long, uncomfortable silence. And, um, you know, when I, when I teach classes, I've, I've come to embrace that long, uncomfortable silence because people are thinking. And the thinking before they're going to talk, which is always a good thing. <laughs> right? So there's this long, right. uncomfortable silence. And, and then, you know, one of the black folks said, you know, and, and back then, you know, the Hispanic community is primarily Puerto Rican, at least as it was seen by non-Hispanics. And one of the black folks said, I've never been in the house of a, of a Puerto Rican, you know, more uncomfortable silence. And then I said, why is that? And more uncomfortable silence. And then um, somebody laughed and said, you know, uh, you know, my my mother told me not to go into the house, not 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 to uh, you know not not to go hang out with black people because they'll shoot you. Mm. And then one of the folks from the uh, one of the a Hispanic woman said, laughed and said, no, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, the black woman laughed and said that huh, my mom's always told me not to hang out with Puerto Ricans because they'll cut you. Wow. And then there's more silence, and then I said, where did these ideas come from? And then the room just came alive for the rest of the night. TV. It came from it came from American television, where you know, not only are white people learning to fear black people, you know, based on stereotypes created by white people who think that they're liberals in Hollywood, but just create fear out of their own minds or recesses of their own minds. What does fear look like in their minds? Not only is it white people learning to fear people of color, but it's people of color learning to fear each other and themselves, and we're all poisoned by this. And that night was just going on and on and on, talking about and dispelling stereotypes people had of each other. So these were fascinating. And then also similarities. Um, you know, the Irish, uh, I, I was just totally blindsided, and I shouldn't have been having a PhD in American studies, but, you know, blindsided by how much kinship there was, literally, you know, between the Irish delegation and the Native American delegations, right, in that, well, they both faced the same oppressor, you know, they both faced British colonialism, brutal, brutal British colonialism, you know, and then they have similar clan systems, similar, you know, ideas about stewardship of the land, similar ideas about sharing the land, and, and, and again, you know, so we just don't talk to each other. And our understandings of each other in a hyper-segregated city like Buffalo come through the media. And, you know, I don't want to use this monolith, the media, because here we are. You're the media. I'm the media. Right. But it comes from media. and it, Perpetuating And, and most of the people lines. who are perpetuating those storylines, you know, at that time actually considered themselves to be liberals. But they were just telling the stories that were in their head. And that's why you have to diversify the voices that tell the stories, because we have all of this baggage within us. We're going to take a time out and just hold it right there. I hope everyone can let that seep in just a little bit as we take this break. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. This week on This American Life, retired police officer Aaron Salter. In his spare time, he built a car that could run on water. 
you got your hydrogen for your electrolysis you got your batteries your water he and nine others were killed at the top's grocery in buffalo in may their stories as you've never heard them this week listen thursday at 10 p.m on wbfo Funding for the WBFO's News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York. Will and Jordy investigate the death of a businessman whose private life is nothing like his public image. Watch Grant Chester on Masterpiece tonight at 9 on WNED-PBS. Support for the Mental Health Initiative is sponsored by the Patrick P. Lee Foundation. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And we are having a very fascinating conversation and one I think that is needed with uh, Professor Michael Nyman of Buffalo State College. Uh, uh, this morning, you ended we ended that break, and I think at a, an appropriate moment, just talking about, like you, like you said, these conversations that emerged in these situations where people basically talked about their, and they, 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 there was a lot of honesty, it sounded like to me, and a lot of revelation about uh, attitudes about race. I'm wondering, that was back in the Clinton administration. So I'm going to push this forward to right now. And I ask this to a lot of our guests. What about hope? Are you hopeful about how things can be moving forward? And you, I think I already know your answer, but go ahead. I'd like to hear you expand on it. My, my wife always warns me about hope, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you can be really careful with hope because hope will always let, you know, usually let you down. And, you know, and I'm not very good, you know, if you, if you look at my writings, I'm really good at identifying problems uh, rather than, you know, solutions, right? I, a lot of journalists kind of, you know, background investigative journal get into that kind of a, but uh, hope, yeah, yeah, what's, what came out of the conversations was hope. That here you have, you know, people that are the community leaders in a very segregated community, in an extraordinarily segregated, you know, metropolitan area, are suddenly embracing the people that they've feared intergenerationally. So when we meet each other one-on-one, there's hope. But, you know, doing workshops on microaggressions, you know, there's, there's, there's hope, but people carry so much baggage. Right. And it's really difficult to move beyond that and that you know we could and then also you know we could get away with we could eliminate uh, hypothetically let's say that was just like somehow some magic miracle kind of thing right and and that racism as a conscious belief system was eliminated the effects of racism would continue to go on intergenerationally unless we also change those institutions so i mean i I do have hope, right? Um, but it's difficult. So, for instance, if talking with my students, I said one, one of the major, major, you know, uh, institutional mechanisms that drives intergenerational racial wealth disparity 
is it disparities in our education system. You look at the Buffalo metropolitan area, which basically it goes on to Erie County, and you look at how many artificial political divisions, how many lines are drawn on maps, how many different governments exist, and they all fund their school systems from property taxes so that the wealthiest communities spend so much more you know, per student for students who already have so many advantages and that poor schools are impoverished. And you see the results of this where I start seeing students come into Buffalo State from school districts across the state. You know, some come in with the benefit of, of like, you know, seven classes of advanced placement right. courses. And others come in having to take zero, 100-level remedial classes that financial aid doesn't pay for that they don't get any credits for. So, like, there's this disparity that stems from education. So I pose this student, this question to my students. Hypothetically, I go, the funding of education is an institutional, you know, is an institutional barrier, the way we fund education, to racial equity. How about if we just had one school district encompassing the whole county? It would still be a fraction of the size of, you know, school districts in, in places like Chicago and New York and maybe L.A. Right. You know, it wouldn't be absurdly large. And that we take the property taxes also. We not just have one school district, but basically have one municipality countywide, and everybody pays taxes to the county, and that money is divided per capita to school districts across the county. And all the students, that would be a great idea. Why can't we do that? And then I ask it to them personally. Okay, who lives in Orchard Park? Who hmm. lives in Orchard And I do. And okay, so if you're still living there and you have children, would you really vote to do that? Because it would cause... Uh, a, a very serious um, lowering of equity would cause a lower quality of education for your children because that money would be equitably shared among all children as opposed to, you know, that privilege would disappear. Then you'd have equity. Would you honestly, would you still vote for that? Would you support it? And, like, people are really good about being dishonest, <laughs> right? But some, you know, and that really causes them to think. And and that's the problem. Then we get into like, you know, well, you're hardwired to take to care for your offspring, right? You know, I'm like, does that mean, right? So like there are so many things working against us that, you know, don't rely on hope. But you can't, you're not going to have anything without hope. And one thing I got to say is is that unrelated, you know, somewhat, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, a food systems project, a research project, a sabbatical project, partnering with my wife, who also is, you know, uh, is working on it. And we're looking at um, people who are involved in uh, projects in the food system, basically decolonizing the food system, uh, that see their work as being social justice. You know, and we're looking at various different projects from seed all the way to table, you know, and what the, the surprising thing is everybody we've interviewed have just blown us away with giving us for the giving us hope that there are fantastic people out there doing amazing things certainly you know um in the food system right and that there are people we are talking we're having this conversation on WBFO I'm sorry, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we would not be having this conversation on WBFO. So we've, we've come a long way. And that language that I'm using here, which 
you're familiar with, and most of your listeners are familiar with, was Alien, not that long ago. You know, uh, you know when we're talking about, you know, we're talking about various types, institutional racism, you know, racist policies, um, you know, we're talking about it. So I'm, I'm hopeful. But people are very quick to engage in um, performative allyship and performative anti-racism until it comes to actually confronting that they have privilege and that for there to be equity, a level playing field means that they might have to give up some of their privilege. And, you know, so let's see how far hope goes. Right. Right. But we get people talking about these things, but that's the solution is going to be some fundamental changes and that they're not going to be popular. But the people, I mean, who would have thought, I'm really inspired by how far we've come with LGBTQIA, you know, rights in my lifetime. You know, um, we have recent a, lifetime, recent lifetime. We have a long way to go. But, you know, how quick. Right. And that as a matter of fact, yeah, absolutely. You know, there aren't that many people who are even, you know, will blink, you know, at, at, at a loving same sex couple. Uh, there are big pockets of hate, geographic pockets of hatred that, that are associated, you know, with basically. The reason, I think the reason why we've been able to make these uh, advances with LGBTQI rights is because most everybody has, you know, some queer family member. So it's not an abstract. But with race, we have hypersegregation. And, and that the black folks that you have living in, in rural pockets of overwhelming whiteness, um, you know, kind of, you know, they kind of, you know, it, it's too much of a burden to be doing this representation, right? And just kind of like, you know, go along with the flow and that then you have the white folks say, well, they're not like the others and these mm. horrible racist things, you know, because they don't know the others because they only see this family. It's like when I was in doing field work in northern Minnesota, um, I was writing my book on the rainbows, uh, and I meet the sheriff, and the sheriff is John Light, and he is a very tall, very dark-skinned black man in one of the whitest places I've ever been in my life, northern Minnesota. Okay. So I'm just like, wow, these people are kind of cool. They elected him for the last 18 years over and over again, elected him sheriff. And I came home, and I told my wife, I go, wow, you know, and, and there's this black man who's the sheriff. And, and, and she said, and you think that's not racism, right? Did they elect him comptroller? Did they elect him county executive? No, you want your cops to be scary because you're afraid of outsiders passing through. So they elected, you know, it's like, okay. And then it goes with like when I was in Guatemala talking to people and, and they were warning me not to go to Belize, you know, living in Guatemala, and they're telling me not to go to Belize. Or why not Belize? It's la tierra de los negros, right? It's the land of black people. I go, so what's wrong with that? And they go, Miguel, right? What's wrong with you? Don't you understand? I go, no, I don't. And then they told me black people are dangerous. And I, 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 in the States, I live in a black neighborhood. Where do you get this idea of black people are dangerous? And they're like, don't you watch TV? Mm. Well, yeah, what are you watching? Right? And they were watching like Hill Street Blues, <laughs> 
you know, it might have been NYPD Blue. Depending, I forget the Depend time frame, that, right? <laughs> right? So we'll look at NYPD Blue. NYPD Blue was supposedly groundbreaking because you have, you know, the smartest guy in the room, you know, this black lieutenant, right? But he's also scary. He's a cop, right? So, you know, you still have, among liberals who think they're changing the media, you still have the same, the same baggage. So, yeah, I'm hopeful. But, man, we got a lot of work ahead of us. Uh, you brought up microaggressions. We only got a couple of minutes to go, but um, I'm interested to hear about some of your insights about that because that, I think, is a, another big part of this conversation that hopefully will continue on for a long time to come. But something that, again, a self-analysis that's needed to understand microaggressions, the things that we give off to each other. What can you tell us? You know, I, I, I can't really in three minutes, you know, adequately, you know, talk about microaggressions other than something like, oh, I saw the pictures on your desk. Your family looks so nice. Mm. That kind of stuff. <laughs> right. Which just cuts to the soul. Like, what do you expect them to be? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, microaggressions. That's my that's my 30 seconds on, my, you know, on microaggressions. Right. It's, it's again, it's racism. It's. People are nice, and they can still be racists. You know, Ibram X. Kendi uh, talks about he avoid ter- using the term racist and just talk uh, people, but talk about a racist action. And he'll say, like, even the most avowed racist at some moment in their life, some Klansman or some Nazi, at some moment in their life, they might have, like, helped a black woman who was crossing the street whose shopping bag broke or, or stopped to help somebody by the side of the road. That is that even, you know, the worst, quote unquote, racists might have done something anti-racist in their life for a moment. And that's if you want to go back to hope, that's what we have to really look at. And, and that's the hook in that, you know, people are not, you know, the societies that evolutionarily survived were societies that were not violent and societies that were open and societies, you know, so that there is hope because it's been our history. Fascist movements always collapse on themselves. The lies get too big. They turn against each other fighting for power. So there's hope. Microaggressions are just an example of how, you know, people who really would be horrified if you told them that anything that they did was racist hurt other people around them who they care for through insensitive things that they have no clue they're saying or doing because racism is so much a part of our culture. It's, a found, it's foundational, and it's inside of all of us. So microaggression workshops are really interesting. I bet they are, and um, perhaps maybe we can have you come back and we go into that for a full hour some other time, huh? Some other time. I'd like that very much. Uh, Professor, Professor Michael Nyman of uh, Buffalo State College, I uh, really appreciate your, your time with us this morning and uh, giving us a lot of insight for sure. Well, thank, thank you for having me. I, I, I learned that phrase, uh, Terry Gross. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, though, really. NPR for lifelong learners, right? Yeah. For sure. Uh, this has been a Buffalo What's Next. We're pleased to be along with you, of course, and we're here with you every day uh, from uh, 10 until 11. Don't forget that you can also listen to the rebroadcast at night here on WBFO, and it's also available as a podcast as well. And find it online at our website, wbfo.com. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.